Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. But let's continue on now. Maybe you caught some of the theme that I was talking about. As you read through, you were reading something that's deeply Jewish. There's a whole lot of nuance that is Jewish. This is Jewish people talking to Jewish people in a Jewish background and uh, in Jewish thinking. So a lot of the subtleties we have to work a little bit as Christians looking at what's being said actually in some of it. Here's the things I, I want you to catch is that John's gospel is it echoes this Jewish subtlety. Judaism's really based on the idea of like Ecclesiastes 3.1. It says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Under heaven. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And if we practice Judaism, we'd know what they were talking about. And if we understood it, we would uh, even have seen it in the chapters. Chapter 5, it was the May season of Shavuot, the festival of first fruits. The opportunity was God was showing the first fruits of healing by the Messiah, doing something the law itself couldn't do. In chapter 6, it happens around the April season of Passover, the deliverance. And the opportunity was, there was the Messiah feeding 5,000 as God did in the wilderness. And today we're in chapter 7, and now we're in the September season of Sukkot, the festival of booths or ingathering. A time to remember God's miraculous care in the desert. The opportunity that's unfolding here the Messiah uses it to show how God still cares, and now he's even doing it with skin on. Each festival, each festival, man, if we grab this from Judaism, it'd be worthwhile, is a window of opportunity and purpose. Each festival was opportunity and purpose. And in chapter 7, each is the backdrop which... Christ is proving who he is. It's an amazing thing. God operates in seasons and purposes for groups, for individuals, in a life, in a nation, in a culture. God works in season and purpose and he brings limitless opportunity because God is limitless, but he always does it with a limited amount of time. Limitless opportunity, limited time. How does that work in chapter 7? Even more, what does it even mean to us that this is the lesson 2,000 years later? Well, let's look at what really happened in chapter 7. Let's get a, a little bit Jewish in it anyway. It's the season, the festival of Sukkot. It was required by law that any man living within 15 miles of the Jewish, the Jerusalem temple, attend this temple and the festival. And anyone outside that radius of 15 miles, well, they weren't obligated, but they would come for the sheer joy of it. It was a festival. 
As you started reading this chapter, you probably found that a rather curious beginning in verses 1 and 2 when you get Jesus' brothers talking. You say, what's really going on there? What's really coming down? Well, the truth of it is, Jesus' brothers in there were being what brothers are. Anybody grow up in a household of brothers? And, and, and you're sitting there, I, I noticed no excitement in the face. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's Jesus with his technically half-brothers. And they are not speaking a reverent suggestion, if you're wondering, in the beginning of it. They're actually doing what brothers do, and they're trying to press his buttons. That's exactly right, the same way that you experienced Jesus was too. They're trying to push his buttons, and what they're really saying is something to this effect. Hey, bro, that's biblical, by the way, Jewish people talk like that. If you really want to make an impact, if you really want to impress those disciples of yours, why don't you hit the big time? Go down to Jerusalem during the festival and show them what you really got. Go on, go do this. Come on, we'll all go together. Yep, so there's Jesus. He's getting his buttons pushed. And uh, he responds in a very unique way. As a matter of fact, you know, the word he uses here, it's only used once in the entire Gospels. See, when he talks about time and he says, my time has not yet arrived, in most cases when Jesus talks about time, he's using what we expect, that word hora, meaning uh, a fixed time, an unavoidable hour. Debbie get all excited in class, she talked about the rapture. That's a time. That's a hora. That's a, a judgment is a time. But the word that Jesus uses here is the word karyos, which means an opportunity or an opportune time, a time in season, a right time, and guess what? A limited time. That's the word he uses. See, there will come a time, an opportunity, when Jesus will enter Jerusalem as the king of peace, but not this time. And there's a time when the Christ will be lifted up and save the world. But that isn't that time either. What this is, is a season for teaching and witnessing as someone coming from the Father. And this has to happen first because God in His love and His justice he wasn't just going to lay down a decision. He was going to allow humanity the greatest opportunity of hearing what he is really doing, what he really thinks, and what we really need to do. So God's love and justice demanded that it start with all of this teaching. Jesus tells his brothers, and you might have caught this too. He says he's not going and then he goes. Did you catch that in there? And some people go, liar! Jesus lied! Well, no, that's not really how it went down. Jesus uh, was actually talking in terms of opportunity. He said, hey, bros, Jesus said that too, Pam. 
Um, I'm not going down. You guys go ahead. You know, any plan. Because the opportunity that was existing was him not to go down to prove to his brothers who he was. The opportunity was to go down to humanity and speak as the Son of Man, the one who came from the Father and was doing and saying what the Father would have him do. That was the opportunity. That's the way he went to Jerusalem. And it was something totally different than some childish proof for his brothers. Well, what was the opportunity? What did it look like? How did it work? Well, we already know we're in this festival called Sukkot or the Festival of Booths. Real interesting festival in its purpose. See, the idea is called the Festival of Booths was this, is that they built temporary structures. And one of the rules in this temporary structure you would build and sleep in for the week was that the roof had to have a hole in it. And it had to be big enough for you to see the sky, that you were seeing the, the sun in the daytime and you would see the stars at night. And you'd say, well, why would they want to do something like that? Well, Sukkot was a festival to remember what it was like to be homeless. The time that the generations spent between Egypt and the Promised Land and all they could do is trust to God and follow God. So every year there would be a week that they would sleep in these temporary structures, remember what it was like to be homeless, remember what it was like to depend on God's promise and what God was doing. And the thing is, is when they were in the desert, there was no harvest. There was manna, but there was no harvest. So it, it was along in September when there was a harvest. So every harvest that you were enjoying, your harvest in this promised land, you remember when Israel didn't even know or, or have a harvest. So it was quite a purpose to this. And Jesus takes this festival, it was important for us to understand that, Jesus takes this festival as the opportunity to teach what he needed to teach. Okay, there's the opportunity. What was he teaching? Verse 14 says, When the feast was half over, halfway through the week, Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. Then the Jewish leaders were astonished and said, How does this man know so much when he has never had formal instruction? And Jesus replied, My teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. And who was that? Oh, it just happened to be the God who led you through the desert. Jesus taught from the authority of his Father, the great I Am, that leader through the wilderness. And if you think about the timeline of where this is, this opportunity was a thousand years in the making. It was a while since they were homeless in the desert. If they were ever going to hear what he had to say, it was going to be now. If they were ever going to perk up their ears, this was the time and the opportunity. So the festival continues, and at the climax of the festival on that what was traditionally seven, now it was even eight days, but on the seventh day, 
what would happen is the priests and the people would circle the altar seven times and then pour out water. Again, something that was a strong symbol, not just of the dryness of the desert, but of the wealth of God. The water represented the power of God, the Spirit of God, the intervention of God. If they were ever going to listen to what he said next, it would be now. If anyone is thirsty, imagine this, They've just walked around this altar seven times and poured out the water of God on the ground in front of the altar, over the altar. And then the Son of God stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the Scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now we said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were going to receive, yet a time and opportunity to come, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It was an opportunity to prepare for what God was going to do. Time and opportunity. Time and opportunity. In this opportunity, Christ speaks with such authority that even his detractors had to stop and listen. Verse 45 told us, Then the officers returned, they were supposed to be arresting him, to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring bring him back with you? And the officers replied, No one ever spoke like this man. God speaking with a human voice. What an infinite opportunity, but limited time. Verse 33, Then Jesus said, I will be with you for only a little while longer, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Limited time. Now here's where we're getting to the crux of the matter. There's a whole bunch of people seeing this. There's a whole bunch of people hearing this. There's a whole bunch of people processing what this even means. And they respond in different ways. And the dynamics in which the people respond in this time still with us. Still respond in the same way. So let me highlight just quickly... And I shouldn't just say people because these are Jewish people. These are religious people. These are church people. And church people to this day still respond in this way. Verse 35, Then the Jewish leaders said to one another, Where is he going to that we cannot find him? He is not going to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What did he mean saying you will look for me but will not find Uh, Find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Verse 40, When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But still others said, No, for Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say that Christ is the descendant of David and come from Bethlehem? 
little biblical humor in there for you. The village where David lived, so there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, then the officers returned to the chief priests who had said, why didn't you bring him with you? The officers replied, no one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, you haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. There's a line for you. The religious establishment, the leaders of the nation and the culture say that the people whom they lead are a bunch of cursed rabble. Huh? Aren't you glad there's no division between the church and the culture in our time? Four groups of response. Four groups of response. And looking into the chapter... You may come up with your own labels, but let me propose to you four labels, if you will, of how people responded to this opportunity of the Messiah before them. You've got just mentioned very quickly the disciple group in the beginning. And they're mentioned in passing, but let's consider this. They're, they're an important group, obviously. They're the core disciples. What is really a disciple by definition, a disciple is someone who follows a master in whatever that may be. And a disciple uh, is committed to becoming like the master. That's why Christians are disciples. Then you have the what I'd call the sibling group, those brothers. Here's a group of people that literally grew up with Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. Yet, at this point, in this season, they have no belief. And some of them never will in his family, but others will in time, like James is credited for writing the book of James. But isn't it a tragedy that you could grow up with the God of heaven, not realize it, not appreciate it, and miss the whole thing? There's a the group of the religious establishment, uh, the priest and the Pharisees. Now, you got to keep this in mind. You can't beat them up too bad because this religious system by which these people are working has done really well for seven centuries. It's gone on for 700 years the way it was. It's weathered time. It's weathered trials. And these temple people, to be honest, they learned it and they earned it. They worked hard to be where they are. They know lots of stuff. Why would they ever want to change it? They refuse to accept anything outside their expectations. That's the one problem sometimes of getting too set in your ways. Now, they'd accept the Messiah coming, but he'd have to come exactly the way they expected it to come down, or it wasn't the Messiah at all. Even if God said so, no, no, that's not what we're expecting. Now, chapter 5 showed us what happens when human thinking usurps God's true principles. Remember, that was the chapter on grace and law and the healing of the man by the pool. 
in chapter 5, we saw what happens because when our thinking becomes the religion of God, we get really petty and people remain crippled and the needs tend to get ignored and no one gets healed. That's what we learned about the law in chapter 5. Now, that whole dynamic works even if we don't call it the law, if we just say human religion. In the church today, for all it's supposed to be, whether you're working in the church finances or you're doing the prayer ministry, it either doesn't matter. It's either going to be God's thinking on top or human thinking on top. One or the other is going to be the top authority. It can't be both. Either the Bible interprets your life or your life interprets the Bible. Can't be both. Something is the main thing. Something is the boss. In John's time, in the writing of this, you had this religious establishment that was wealthy enough and they were hardened in what they thought. They were the elite. And they missed the whole point. And they proved to us what it can be to be just religious people. Then there's this fourth group that is the people of the land. Literally. That's the title they were given. The religious elite referred to everyone else as the people of the land. And what they were saying, it wasn't a, a nice term, it was a disparaging term, it was, it was snubbing them. And what it dealt with, it, it meant that the general populace of the country were so stupid, were so ignorant, were so unaware of what was really going on in the Jewish law or in the scripture that they were just accursed. In reality, the people of the land, though what they really were, was just not all I committed. They knew stuff, but some stuff. And they were the common people for sure. They were the most people, uh, the category, and that would go. And, and they were, these are the folks who were open to the idea of the Messiah, but only a little open. The, the idea, could this be the Messiah? Maybe. Hey, this could be him, right? Well, let's just wait and see. Let's see which way popular opinion goes. Let's see what comes out in, in uh, the newspaper in Judea today, you know, when that comes out. And we'll, we'll just see what everybody thinks, and then we'll flow that way. Well, the truth is, in due season, you have this group of people, and some of them would grow into being disciples. Some of them would finally commit. Some would become the rejectors, and... And the majority of them, I'd be willing to say, probably didn't become one or the other. They just, they paused during the opportunity. Hey, listen to that guy. What's he saying? Could he be the Messiah? Uh, maybe. Uh, life got in the way. Got something else to do now. Off I go. And they end up at the end of their lives really not coming to any decision one way or the other. And if you look in there, there's definitely these four types of groups, whatever label we want to give them in there. And I got thinking, 
Why? Why those four groups? Why them? Why that type of parameters? What's God trying to tell us from these four groups? And I thought, well, one thing is, the obvious is that, well, <laughs> those were the people who were there, you know, so it's honest history. These are the people that were there, and that's the way they were reacting. But the second reason is a whole lot bigger. It's because these are the types of people we still are. Go in any church, look around in here, any given Sunday. We have those four groups of people even in here. You know, it, it was really interesting. I appreciated Pastor Chris when you said that you, you were talking about um, kind of the utopian dream. That wasn't your term, but that's kind of where you're going with. The idea is that people are still people. doesn't matter. Go 100 years down the road from now. People are still people. The way we are, we're going to keep making the same mistakes. How do you know that? Because we've done it since there's been a humanity to make mistakes. People are still people. There's still these four groups of people. This is who we still are. So where does it take us? Well, we still have disciples. We still have them in here. Now, these aren't perfect people. They just simply want to follow God. They don't have the time or the energy or the inclination to do all the church politics stuff. They just want to be where God is working. And it's a struggle, isn't it? It's not that everybody gets a crystal clear vision of where God is working at this very moment. But they want to know, and they're sensitive to the Spirit's leading, and they don't want to miss the opportunity. They want to catch the time, and the thing is they don't want to miss the real point. And there's the problem, is whatever God is doing, if He opens an opportunity in a limited time, there's a point to Him doing it. And if we miss the time and opportunity, we miss the whole point. There is a reason to have this, this uh, ecclesia in here of people. And there are other things that if that's what you think, you just missed the whole point. And it doesn't matter. So you have that category going on. There's the siblings category. There's a lot of people that could say, I grew up in church. I can tell you, Stories of when we had an outhouse and people were watching me from <laughs> the doorway. That's a Kevin story. You'll have to have a Kevin tell you that one. Love that story. But the fact is, there's a lot of people who grew up in the church in the presence of a place where God was. It was just familiar. They got real used to the idea of it, but it never struck them to meet the person of it. They just didn't know Jesus for who he was. Speaking of candles, I think of Kevin's dad, Bib. This is, this, he came to mind when I was thinking in this way, is I remember him coming to this very pulpit in his last days when it seemed he was learning so much about this person of Christ. And we used to have, the seating was different, but over in this area, all the youth tended to gather over there. Jordy was over there causing trouble. No, he was a good guy. But there they were over there. Do you, Jordy, maybe you even remember. Bib would get tears in his eyes, look over at these youth over here, and he'd say, 
If I only knew then what I knew now, kids, don't waste the opportunity. The growing up with the Lord, you can miss it. Then there's this other group, this established group, this church group, these religious folks who, man, they just want to hold on to business as usual. And they, they may be trying to enforce something they see as good, maybe a personal notion of what church is, and they're convinced that's just the way to go. But the question is, is that God's way? And these folks who we can get so established, it can happen to any of us, all kinds of variations. Maybe it's, ever meet a, a group of people who have canonized the 1950s? is that church should look like and not change from 1950, and if it's 1950, it's holy. And on the other extreme, you have people that, no, you guys are missing, it's the latest trend. It's, it's the best business model that's out there now. That's where God's working, is in that stuff. And whatever the variation, whatever extreme, whatever side on the scale they are, they're all convinced for some reason that they know best. This is what church is. Could be time, could be ego, you know, time they spent in the church. You know, you could be in a church for 50 years and have done it 50 times wrong. It could be for different reasons, but it's just not biblical. It's just not really where God truly is. How do you know that? Well, if you take a group of people and you say, take five minutes and read chapter 7 of John and you look through and go, some of this doesn't look like what it should look like. It's an amazing thing when you actually look at God's Word. And there's the people of the land. Now that's going to be the most. They're committed, but not too committed. Oh, they're Bible-oriented, but not too rooted. They'll participate, but not too much. They're open to the truth, but not too wide. Let's not get fanatical about this stuff. How does it all work out? Well, here's where I, I will disclaim to the fact a bit of this is just personal observation over the decades. But in the disciple group, this is what I found in church, is that most likely it will be the smallest group, and it will also be the group that quietly disappears when a church becomes unhealthy. Because they're looking for where God is right now. There's the sibling group, and, and those people who grew up with Jesus and they may return if they stray off, and they may not. It, it depends on their church family history and the authenticity that they find in their adult life when they rediscover the church. And it seems the religiously established, quite honestly, here I sit in this group, are the ones that know just enough to be dangerous. Know anyone in... Christian faith who knows just enough to be dangerous? <laughs> Let's not throw out any labels. But you get the idea that they're the ones that they've known enough just to 
congeal into expectations that if God's around, he's like this. They're, they're kind of like set glue. You know, you're not going to move them. They're people of the land. Well, even though they're the most common out there, they'll ponder things. And, and you know what? They won't tend to impulsively jump into things or interpretation or direction. But the truth is, at some point, we do have to commit to something. At some point, we have to commit. We're all somewhere in these four categories, I guarantee you. We're all in them somewhere. But yet, even no matter which category, we're still all afforded opportunity in time. Limitless opportunity, but limited time in whatever it is. That's what John... Seven is all about. Now, keep the, let me just bring this into perspective a little bit as we're kind of winding down with this. Consider when this is going on. This, is, this festival of Sukkot where Jesus is coming in and talking. Within um, two years probably, that man standing there talking as the Son of God won't even be with them anymore physically. Just, just a year or two. Within 40 years, this, this temple, once again brought up wonderfully in the class, this temple that they're so enamored with won't even exist anymore. Not even a brick. Within three years after this, all these great elite Jewish leaders will no longer be. The Pharisees will cease to exist as any entity at all. Things change really quickly. Now if I say things are changing really quickly in our time too, I don't have to explain it. We're all feeling that. Things can change quickly. But here's the good news is God's not taken by surprise at changes. In His foreknowledge, He, he sees everything that's going down. What He's doing is changing up the opportunities in the times. We just have to know where he's working. That's what it's all about. It's where's the opportunity in this limited time? The chapter makes it clear that only those who are in step with Christ, only those who are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, only those who are actually trying to see where the Father is working so they can do what he is doing, only those individuals and only those collection of individuals, this thing we call church, will hear good and faithful servant. Only they will. Limitless opportunity, but limited time. I said, okay. I got this far on about draft 35, and I said, but what, what does that look like? Who, who is this church? Who are these people of, of the good and faithful servants? I said, not my idea. What's God's idea? And just not exhaustive, but just a quick survey of this is who God says these people are. You use it for a mirror, but this is who God says these people are. Eight little points. One. They don't worry about the physical, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
realizing the rest gets added on. Matthew 6.31 These folks are peacemakers. They're humble, pure of heart, and hungry to be right with God. Matthew chapter 5 They show the fruit of being spiritually alive. And they produce the fruit in what they do. Galatians 5 and Matthew 7.16 Trait 4, they follow the command to go into all the world. Guess what? The real church doesn't stay in these walls. And they make disciples. Matthew 28.19 They pray unceasingly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 6 Their meetings do not look like the meetings of the world. Not their board meetings, not their worship meetings. They do not look like what is in the world. They're an honest priority is in unity. And no matter what the meeting, they're trying to grow into the full nature of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 They are warriors. They are warriors who know how to put on the whole armor of God. Seems to me, I'm thinking back the last annual meeting we had, there was some crazy guy came up with a little statue with the armor of God. I don't know what that was all about. But it seems he must have read Ephesians 6. These warriors put on the whole armor of God and they're armed in truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, and genuine salvation. And they have a history of standing against the arrows of Satan. Ephesians 6.10 And 8. They realize the war is against spiritual hosts of wickedness and not against each other. There's no place in there for backstabbing or gossip or power grabbing or dissension or getting your own way. 1 Corinthians 1.10, 3.3, 11.18, Romans 16.17, Galatians 5.13, 1 John 4.20. Think that one might be important? Not my ideas, not my traits, not what I came up with. There's the mirror from God Himself to you and me. That's it. And it leads us down to a question I hope you take with you. And no matter what you're doing, you think about this for the whole week. If that's the mirror, what kind of church are we? If that's the mirror, what kind of believer are you? If that's the mirror, what kind of church and believers do we honestly want to be? Time and opportunity. Opportunity and time. Limitless opportunity. Limited time, folks. Limited time. The clock is ticking.